In our introduction to John's gospel, I noted how the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 present for us a prelude of sorts for the entire book. John lays out in these verses a thesis statement concerning Jesus that then he's going to spend the rest of his gospel, the rest of his book, uh, building upon. As stated in his conclusion in John chapter 20, the purpose for his writing is to establish the case that Jesus is not only God, the Son of God, but that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. We'll start this morning in verse 6, but let's just kind of get a running head start, recap a few things. Let's just read the first five verses. John opens, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. As I mentioned at the end of last Sunday's study, it's not an accident that John ties specifically the beginning of his gospel to the creation narrative that was provided for us in the Genesis record. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created all things, with the crescendo of his creation being man, whom we're told a few verses later, God created in his image and his likeness. Sadly, though, it didn't take very long for God's perfect creation to experience a devastation. Man, as we're told in the Genesis record, rebelled against his creator. Sin entered the equation. All of creation was marred from its original design. Sadly, life and light were replaced with darkness and death. By opening his gospel with this phrase, in the beginning was the word. John is intentionally presenting Jesus as both God and as Savior in the context of Genesis chapter 1. You see, while Genesis records God's original creation of man, John will present Jesus' recreation of man. God's light shining forth in a world darkened by sin, life, life found in Jesus in place of the death caused by sin. Well, verse 6 John continues this prelude, this thesis, writing, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. After describing for us the general revelation of the word, being extended to man as the light that shines in the darkness, with then the tragic admission that the darkness did not comprehend, or or that more specifically the world refused to take hold of God's revelation, John then continues by introducing us now to, quote, the true light, notice a capital L, which gives light to every man coming into the world. As we mentioned in our exposition of the first five verses, in a stroke of genius, 
John does not come right out of the gate using the name Jesus, though he's undoubtedly writing about Jesus. Instead, John gives us uh, intentionally a measure of mystery, a bit of intrigue surrounding the identity of his central character here. He calls him in the first 18 verses the word. He refers to him as God. He calls him the only begotten of the Father. In this instance, he's introduced to us as the light. The reality is that John is setting the stage for the remainder of his gospel, the rest of his writing. In context, the true light, we're also briefly introduced to a man, John says, was sent from God named John. He then adds, This man was not that light, but came to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Now, now don't forget, John has about the vocabulary in the Greek of of 600 words. He can barely read. He's a first grade education level. He was a fisherman. He writes using very simplistic phrases, repeats a lot of words, but what he's writing is very deep. Now, note that this John that John is referring to, is not the gospel author, but we'll come to find him to be a man named John the Baptist, or probably better clarified, because he wasn't a Baptist. John the Baptizer. Verse 10. He continues. He, now context, he referencing the word and the light. He was in the world, and the world was made through him referencing back to this original word. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, John writes, and his own did not receive him. Not only was the general revelation of God rejected by the world in times past, but John now tells us that even when Jesus finally came to earth, the world did not know him. And his own, speaking of the Jewish people, did not receive him. What a sad summary, right, of Jesus' earthly ministry. And note, in referencing the world, he uses this phrase, cosmos. There's a lot of things John could be referencing, but he's more specifically referring to humanity. While the secular world was oblivious that God had sent his son, oblivious to Jesus' identity, And and the Hebrew people, even knowing his identity, knowing who he was, still rejected him. It is true that the natural and the spiritual world had a much different reaction to Jesus. As we'll see, it was only humanity that was oblivious or rejected him. The demonic world had no problems admitting the true identity of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the demonic world accepted who Jesus was, referring to him often as the Son of God. And they would obey immediately his commands. Not only that, the natural world would also obey Jesus. No debates as to who Jesus was from the wind and the waves. He would rebuke the wind and the waves and they would obey in a moment. So when when John is talking about this obliviousness of of humanity, he's speaking not of the demonic world, the spiritual world, or the natural world. He's talking about the human world, rejecting Jesus, resisting Jesus, not receiving him. Verse 12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love that. But as many as. You might want to underline that. Like what a transition. Like in contrast to those who rejected Jesus, John tells us, but there were those who chose to receive him. The idea that John is conveying for us in the Greek language using this word receive, it would not be lost on his original audience. Earlier in the, in the first few verses, we were told that the darkness did not comprehend the light. It's a poor translation. It's not that they didn't understand. It's that they refused to take hold of. They refused to receive. You see, what John is doing is he's playing a contrast. While the darkness did not comprehend, there were those who received him. You see, the opposite idea is now being articulated. To receive him means so much more than to simply accept Jesus on an intellectual basis. The word used here literally means to lay hold of or to fully embrace Jesus with every fiber of your being. John adds a bit of clarity. He says that those who receive him are also what? Those who believe in his name. To the Hebrew mind, a name. A name was important. A name to the Hebrew, it signified something deep, something profound. A name signified the entirety of the individual's being. Jacob, heel catcher. God changes his name to Israel, one under the submission of God. Abram changed to Abraham. Sarai, just go through it. Names signified a lot. It defined an individual. You see, understand, John is describing for us by saying not only those who receive him, but those who believe in his name, he's telling us, he's describing a person who's placed their sole faith, their sole confidence in all of who Jesus is and all of what Jesus has done, the entirety of his being, his name. And notice, what results in the life of those who receive him and believe in his name. John says, to them, to them, Jesus, he, gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, how interesting, and don't miss this subtle detail, that while we, you and I, are actively involved in the initial work, right? But as many as what? Receive him and believe. So, so there's an initial work we are very active in. Receiving and believing in Jesus. You notice, John says that we're totally and absolutely passive in everything else that results or everything that follows. Like in response to our initial activity concerning Jesus, receiving him and believing, placing our confidence in his name, what happens? Well, we're told God does something amazing in your life. We're told that he gives us the right to become his children. This heavenly status, according to John, this heavenly status is not something that you can earn. It's not something that you merit. It's not even something, for that matter, you deserve. Instead, based on you receiving Jesus and placing your faith in him, it's a position now that God gives you, that he bequeaths, 
that he bestows to you. Now, in order to illustrate that incredible concept, and it is incredible, John adds that such a person is born of God. Did you notice that? That's a, that's a weird phrase. Like, not only does this notion of being born, and then he adds some, some caveats to it, right? Being born how? Well, he says, not of blood. For that matter, not even of the will of the flesh or of man. You see, John here is he's introducing through this phrase, born of God, the concept of rebirth. The regeneration, the rebirth of man yielded through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an idea that Jesus will unpack in great detail when we get to John chapter 3. But, for our purposes, by invoking the imagery of birth, you see, it serves to emphasize how absolutely little involvement any of us have in the process. Consider your physical birth, your physical birth. How much of a role did you play? Not much. I've seen it happen twice. Those two little jokers did very little. They just became. They came. It was a simple thing. It was a natural thing. It was an organic thing. They didn't have to work to be born. They were born. They didn't even deserve to be born. They were born. It was a work done independent of them. An amazing thing. You see, the grand point that John is making, once again, in a thesis, he'll unpack this in greater details later on, but in his thesis, his big point here is that Jesus came to earth specifically to accomplish something for you. More specifically, something you could not accomplish for yourself. Like Jesus didn't come offering some type of a self-help program. Yourself doesn't need to be helped. It needs to be transformed. It needs to be made into something radically different. And guess what? There's a process to it, right? A process, John uses this word, and are becoming the people that God desires us to be. Not only does John here speak of our salvation, that we were given this right, but he also speaks to our sanctification, our becoming more like Jesus through this process. Now, I'll unpack all of that a little bit more at the end of our study. Before we continue, John, this phrase, but as many as received him. There's one more thought I wanna share. Like what makes to me that statement so radical, so unbelievable, is that as many as is presented for us in the active tense. As many as implies that that hasn't finished. As a matter of fact, there's a continuation to those who are receiving Jesus and believing in his name today. Who? Those who are born. Those who are children. You know who those are included? You. And me, it's still active. Friend, while the world and the Hebrew people continue in their rejection of Jesus today, if you choose to receive him, 
this morning. If you make a decision to place your sole confidence to go all in in Jesus' name, God promises to begin a most excellent work within you. He will give to you this morning the right to become his child, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is very particular with his words. And he writes something profound. The word, this word he introduces in verse one, the word became flesh. What a radical statement. Once again, keep in mind, Jesus was not made. John's clear. Jesus became flesh. The incarnation, it's interesting, John doesn't write of Jesus' birth. Not like the other, the other authors. Not like Matthew or Luke. John, this is it. This is the manger scene. The word became flesh. It's what happened. So many years ago, in the fields of Bethlehem. But it's in the incarnation here, the word becoming flesh, that the pre-existent God who has always been and will always will be, took to his deity, humanity. Now, in one of the greatest mysteries of the universe, and we should call it that and admit it, it is a mystery. John tells us the second member of the Trinity, while remaining fully God, intentionally became a human being. I have no idea why he would want to do that. Not only are we told that this was a singular event in all of eternity? Something that has never happened before and would never happen after. But we're told here that Jesus became flesh only to remain in such a permanent state forever. Becoming speaks of permanence. Now how awesome is that to think that in heaven, not only today, but when you arrive, you will see a God in heaven existing and flesh, looking no different than you. The man Christ Jesus, we're told, will rule from his throne in heaven, and of his reign there will be no end. It should also be pointed out that this word became. It indicates for us a particular willingness on the part of Jesus. Like, understand, Jesus wasn't coerced. He wasn't made to do this. He didn't draw the short straw in heaven. Nor was Jesus compelled. Jesus chose to become flesh. And he chose to dwell among us. What love. I'm blown away by this word dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Aside from the fact that it tells us that God actually and, and with intention came to rub shoulders with humanity. The word itself, it's fascinating. Dwelt can be translated as tabernacled. 
Now, in the Old Testament, all kinds of imagery should emerge. Before the temple was built by King Solomon, the tabernacle was a portable tent that acted as a place that God would come and meet with whom? His people, with humanity. You see, the idea that John is invoking by using such a word, it's, it's obvious. Jesus came to earth not just to dwell among us. He came as God to meet specifically with man through his person. And it's in doing this that John adds that we are able, in Jesus, to behold God's glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This word behold, another really interesting word. It it can be translated into our modern vernacular kind of with the idea of a theater. Like to watch him, we beheld him. It's like the ultimate reality TV is what John's getting at. Like we watch God. And in watching Jesus, we beheld the very person and personality of God himself. And what do humanity, what do you and I learn about God by looking at Jesus? Well, what we learn, according to John, and what we'll see through his gospel, is that Jesus is full, or literally, he's filled to the brim of two things, grace and truth. Like, don't, don't miss the importance of that. Jesus is filled to the brim with grace and truth. A combination. You see, Jesus, as we look at his life, Jesus' grace will always be measured by truth, but truth will always be filtered through his amazing grace. He is full of grace and truth. This thesis, what we'll discover when we look at Jesus through his gospel, we will see, yes, that Jesus came, not mixing words, not tempering the grave reality of your situation. Full of truth, Jesus is absolutely and sometimes brutally honest about our present condition. Jesus will declare that you're not okay the way that you are. He'll say you're lost, that you're in rebellion, And then apart from him, you'll find yourself headed towards destruction. And yet, we should all be so thankful that in addition to being full of truth, Jesus is also full of grace. Though you're lost, right? Truth. Jesus came that you may be found. Grace. Though you're broken, the truth. He came to make you whole. Grace. Though you're blind, truth. He came to provide sight, grace. Though you're damned, the truth. He came to save, grace. Indeed, the glory of the Father is revealed in this radical but necessary marriage of grace and truth found in the person of Jesus. Verse 15. John bore witness of him. And cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, John writes, at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. 
Though John once again mentions this interesting man, John the baptizer, who he's about to write extensively about, so we'll leave the commentary for later. I do want to focus for just a few minutes on some of the radical statements that John makes concerning Jesus in these verses. Consider, just for a minute, the depths of this declaration. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Notice the comparisons that John makes. He contrasts the law with grace and truth. He says one was given to man while the other came to man. John points to the mechanism of the first being through Moses before emphasizing the latter as being extended through Jesus Christ. Now, let me make an aside. When you find Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. It's not Jesus' first name, Christ's last name. Like that's not, Christ is a title. Actually, in the way that I'll read it moving forward, is I'll say it's Jesus the Christ. There is a definite article between Jesus and Christ. He's the Christ, the Savior, the promised Messiah. Now, John's intention here, within the context of this being the introduction still to his gospel, is to set Jesus and what he accomplished, what he came to do apart from the Old Testament, the Old Testament model of law, the Old Covenant. You see, instead of a mortal man like Moses being the mechanism through which God gave rules and laws to obey, Jesus did something completely in contrast. Jesus came personally, the word became flesh, the light. He came to extend to humanity two eternal realities. It's not rules, it's not things to obey, it's not things to do. He came to extend God's grace and truth through his very person. Grace and truth indeed came in the person of Jesus. I'm also struck by the statement of his fullness, we have all received Grace for grace. Uh, Highlight grace for grace. Circle it. Put a post-it note, a little sticker, a couple stars. If you're feeling down, go back. Because Jesus came to give grace for grace. Like this duplicate, grace for grace. It, it It should be read as he came to give wave after wave after wave after wave of grace. Or or maybe stated a different way, grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. You're picking up a common theme? Just when you think you may have reached the last wave of God's grace, guess what follows it? Another wave of grace. And just when you think, well, clearly that's gotta be it, God's done. You'll be hit with another wave of God's grace. You see, John is telling us in a summary here of Jesus's life that Jesus the Christ oozed grace to every single person he encountered. If you want to experience the grace of God, meet Jesus. And if you want to grow in the grace of God, get to know Jesus. The deeper you get to know Jesus, the deeper his grace How powerful. Jesus came as the manifestation of God's grace, which you should note is why we've titled the gospel itself, our study anyway, as the gospel of grace. Finally, 
John makes this other profound statement. He says, while no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. This word declared can be translated as exegesis, meaning to expound, to to fully display. When it pertains to bibliology or our study of the Bible, this is what we do on Sundays. We exegesis the, the text. We dig deep into the text. That's what John is saying. See, he's telling us that the very heart of God, what he means by the bosom of the Father, the very heart of God is declared. It's revealed. It's discovered in the person of Jesus. This means that if you really want to know God, you get to know Jesus. And if you get to know Jesus, and him you'll discover the heart of God. Verse 19, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Though twice John has already mentioned this John the baptizer in his introduction. Beginning with verse 19, he finally transitions to giving us John the baptizer's testimony. What he testifies to. Now keep in mind, since John is the last of the gospel writers. He doesn't provide us any of John the baptizer's backstory in order to avoid redundancies. Let me give you just a little bit. In Luke chapter one, we're told of John's unique biography. He was born the son of Elizabeth and a priest named Zacharias. John was supernaturally conceived in their old age. You can read all about it. And he grew up in a religious home as a result. But Keep in mind, according to Luke 1, God had been clear from the very beginning as he's forming John in the womb of his mother Elizabeth that he had a special purpose for this man's life. Beyond this, Luke adds that John, the baptizer, was actually the cousin of Jesus. In both Mark chapter 1 and Matthew 3, we're told that in addition to, quote, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, John himself was clothed in camel's hair. He had this leather belt around his waist and his food was was locusts and wild honey. Talk about a paleo diet. Absolutely granola. Matthew also adds that because of his ministry and his preaching and the things that were happening, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region around the Jordan came to John and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. One of the things that made John such a compelling character is really the timing of his ministry. The Old Testament closes with Malachi the prophet. And since then, God had been silent for roughly 400 years. 400 years! No prophets, no word, no revelation. Totally different for the nation of Israel. So you can imagine how a man like John, this wild man, down at the Jordan River, preaching a radical message, John would have sent shockwaves throughout the region, unexpectedly bursting onto the scenes. There would have been an energy. It would have been palpable. Not only was his message of repentance gnarly to say the least, But the fact that John was baptizing Jews 
in the Jordan River was completely and utterly unorthodox because of the crowds that were flocking to the Jordan. To hear John preach, coupled with his growing popularity among the people, we're told here in John's gospel that the Jews, speaking of the religious leaders, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him a very specific question. Who the heck are you? Like as the custodians, the protectors of the Hebrew faith, what's happening here, it was completely appropriate. It was within their right and responsibilities. Who are you? What are you doing? Where did you come from? You need to give us some answers here. Most interestingly, their inquire centers on his identity. And John, knowing the essence of their thought process, what they were really getting at, while they don't ask him specifically, he answers specifically, doesn't he? Who are you? And he jumps right to it. Guys, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the one all the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. The fundamental question on everyone's mind is, could John be the Messiah? And he says, I'm not that guy. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that while John swiftly dispels any notion that he was the Christ, in the Greek, the grammatical emphasis on this phrase, I am not the Christ, the emphasis is on the word I. I, I'm not the Christ. This is how he's saying it. The implications being that the actual Christ was probably in their midst that very moment. John is making this statement. Kind of like saying, you want to know if I'm the Christ. I'm not that guy. It's kind of how it's, it's, it's playing out. So they ask him, verse 21, what, then are you Elijah? And he says, I, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? After John emphatically denies being the Messiah, the Christ, the Jewish leaders continue their line of inquiry. They say, well, are you Elijah? Now, that seems weird. Truth? That seems like a bizarre question. What would you ask if he's Elijah? Well, in a Hebrew context, that's not that bizarre of a question. I mentioned the Old Testament closes with Malachi the prophet. Well, Malachi's prophecies close with two verses. The Old Testament closes. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 with God making a prophecy. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and coming dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You see, the pervasive Jewish understanding in the first century was that Elijah, the prophet, would actually come again to the nation of Israel before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, today, the Jewish people are still convinced that Elijah is still on the horizon, that Elijah's coming. During the Passover Seder, this meal during the Seder, there's actually a part of the process where they leave a chair open at the table, an empty chair, and there's part of the dinner processions where a child is sent out into the streets to see if Elijah's coming. They set a place at the meal for Elijah because they're still looking for him today. <laughs> but John He's like, I'm not the Christ, and I am not Elijah. So they ask him, are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, 
Moses prophesied that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, capital P, signifying divinity, like me from your midst, from your brethren. Now we understand that what Moses is referring to here is Jesus' first coming. He comes first as the prophet. The Jews, however, confuses, they confuse this, pro, this, this passage entirely, actually looking for two people, the Christ and a prophet. Now, John intentionally avoids any type of greater dis- discussion to their faulty theology. Notice, he says, I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? No, 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 I'm not that. But in regards to this question about the prophet, what does he do? He just kind of bluntly states, no. He's not Christ, he's not the Elijah, he's not the prophet. So, in a palpable frustration, what happens? The religious leaders ask, who are you then? Like, we gotta go back and give a report, so who are you? So he said, verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. To answer their question, the question centering on his identity, and therefore his purpose, John the baptizer directly quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Not only is he saying that he had come to prepare the way, that he was the forerunner to prepare the hearts for the people of the coming of Jesus, but he does something really interesting. In quoting this passage, John ascribes to Jesus the most reverent name for God in the Old Testament. Now, in our translation of his quote, Lord is all lowercase, capital L, but lowercase O-R-D. But if you go to Isaiah 40, verse 3, you'll notice that Lord is in all caps. It's all capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This was Yahweh, the unspoken name of God. It's only the consonants. They removed the vowels so no one could utter it. No one could state it. Today, it's still a mystery as to what the vowels uh, would be. Now, here's the point. John's testimony, what he came to testify of, is that Jesus was not just the Christ, right? But in quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, he's also divine, that he's the Son of God, God incarnate. Verse 24, now those who were sent from the Pharisees, they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So John answered and says, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were told were done in Bethbara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, John, he dispels rumors of his identity. So the next logical question centers on his activity. What's the deal with the baptism thing, man? If you're not these people, then what are you doing? Now, keep in mind, according to the other gospel writers, John's primary ministry was not baptizing. John's primary ministry was preaching a repentance of sins. The act of water baptism incorporated into his ministry approach served to provide the people an outward demonstration of their decision to repent. Like it had nothing to do with salvation. This was all about repentance. And it was outside the box. In Jewish day, the customary process about water baptism was that it was something Gentiles would do. That the Gentile proselytes or someone converting to Judaism would be baptized water baptism at the temple 
But John baptizing Jews? Unheard of. And they come to him like, what's the deal? As the forerunner of the Messiah, John's message, it was basically this. Nation of Israel, my Jewish brethren, the Messiah is coming and you need to be prepared. That was his message in a nutshell. And he knew he served a role in that process. John's job was to prepare the ministry, prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus. You have to admit you're a sinner in order to accept a savior. And John was making it clear, you're not all good. There's some problems. You need to repent and prepare the way for Jesus. John affirms that he was simply a messenger. He came to declare, all rise, the king. As it pertains to the Christ, John knew his place. He not only says, he who coming after me is preferred before me, but he adds this amazing statement. He says, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to loose. Though Jesus will later attest that John was the greatest of all the prophets, this man, I wish we had more time, but he had no ego. John's ministry was to point people to Jesus and then get out of the way. It's a good lesson for pastors. In this passage, John also makes another significant point. He says, there stands one among you whom you do not know. Now, many scholars believe that this scene actually takes place approximately five weeks after Jesus came to John to be baptized. So the baptism of Jesus has occurred and probably immediately following Jesus's 40 days of wilderness temptation. As John is making this statement, once again, Jesus is likely in the, in the audience. Well, let's finish a few verses. We're told the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is before me, for he was before me. And I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John, kind of a summary, John bore witness, past tense, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and, and he remained upon him. Speaking of Jesus, I, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, speaking of God, to baptize with water, said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and testified that this of Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it would appear from John's own witness of things that God had given him a unique sign that would indicate the identity of Christ. When John went out preaching and baptizing, he didn't know who the Christ was. How will I know, he prays. So God gives him this sign. And it was when John baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit descend and remain upon him, John knew without any doubt that Jesus, his cousin, was the long-awaited Messiah. Once again, John the baptizer's testimony is unequivocal. Jesus was not only the Son of God, but he was the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. Now in closing, this title for Jesus, the Lamb of God, would have significant implications 
to the Hebrew mind. In the Old Testament, lambs were offered as a sacrifice to atone for sin. Tragically, though, at best, these sacrifices only provided a temporary covering. And yet, John tells us that Jesus came to be a unique sacrifice. Look back at it. He was to be a sacrifice, not one offered by man to God, but instead was offered by God for man. He is the lamb of whom? Not the lamb of man. He is the lamb of God, the possession of God. As the son of God, Jesus would act as the sacrificial lamb of God offered to take away the sin of the world. Though man's offering would only act as a covering, the sacrifice of Jesus as the lamb would provide a complete removal of sin. Jesus would be the sacrifice offered by God to satisfy the penalty for sin you nor I could ever provide for ourselves. I want you to know up front this morning that not only did the word become flesh and dwell among us, but Jesus willingly came to earth to what? To be a sacrifice to take away your sin. This taking away of your sin, it was his mission. But more than that, it's an identity. Jesus chooses to be identified as the Lamb of God. Now, you'll find that phrase, the Lamb of God, in reference to Jesus, kind of scattered throughout the Gospels. It's not real prominent. Until you get to the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus, 28 times... In the book of Revelation, Jesus will use this phrase, the Lamb of God, to describe himself. Once again, Jesus came to earth to accomplish something for you. Something that you could not do for yourself. As the Lamb of God, Jesus came to earth to die in your place. He came not to cover, to take away your sin so that you can have life in him. I want to say, if you're a believer this morning, and you've totally blown it, I mean, mean, you are struggling under the weight of your own condemnation, under the weight of your own failure, and your inadequacy, and your inability to be good enough, I want you to know, on the cross of Calvary, your sins were permanently taken away. You do not get condemnation from Jesus. You don't get judgment from Jesus. You don't get disappointment from Jesus. You come to the cross and what do you get from Jesus? Wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of grace. So if you're beaten up, that's not from Jesus. Embrace his grace. And yet, if you remain in darkness, if you're overcome with inadequacy, if you want to know about God, look to Jesus, who doesn't stand in judgment, but he oozes grace. This morning, God wants nothing more than to make you his child. God wants nothing more than to initiate A transformation that is so unbelievable, it can only be described as being born again. 
You can't earn that. And you don't deserve it. And yet it's something that God promises to do in the heart of anyone, as many as, would this morning receive him and believe in his name. So as I close, if these truths can serve...